We're a small group. I know we've got some that are joining us online. We've got several we can be praying for, and we're actually going to do that in just a few minutes. Um, I really appreciate Don coming to lead worship. Uh, we had to, I got a, got a call late last night that we had to make a quick change <laughs> with worship this morning. So I, I sent a 911 out, and um, Don was, was uh, able to come and help us out this morning. So thank you, Don, and always good to worship with you. Don taught last week, so I don't know what we'll have you doing next week. We'll have you maybe serving coffee or something next week. But um, I am glad you're here. Uh, today is such an important it's such an important rhythm, and I, hate, I, I almost thought, well, maybe I should, we should postpone this until after we get out of this Delta variant thing, because uh, we're not a big church, but we're not typically this small of a church, and this is so important, I didn't want us to miss it, because we have been working for the, I don't, for the last year, we've been moving in a direction together, and that direction has been not just uh, dealing with the events that we have around us, but we've been moving in a direction to become more authentic followers of Christ and being prepared for where do we go from here? Where do we as a church go from here? And in your life and in our church and in our lives, like things have changed and they're not changing back. Oh, Kidmo. If you're in Kidmo, you can be, I think they've already left. Like when they see me get up, they bolt now. But if you have a second through fifth grader, you're welcome to head back to Kidmo um, and then join, you'll rejoin us after. Or they won't rejoin us. You'll go pick them up, hopefully. Um, our, our workers hope you're going to pick them up. But we've been moving in that place of just saying, you know, things have changed. And some of the changes that have happened do not feel good. And In fact, there's some grieving uh, that goes on over some of these changes. Um, there's just mourning over some of the changes that have happened. But you know, that is not the life that God calls us to stay in. We grieve for a moment and we move forward. And so a lot of the rhythms, these are things that uh, Christians have practiced these from even before the time of Jesus. So we're not doing anything new. We're not doing some kind of weird uh, Eastern mysticism, although there are some practices that all religions have found are meaningful. We're, we're looking at the practices that Christians have said, this is how we grow in our faith. These are the foundational practices of our faith. And if if I, I'll, I'll tell you this, if you're not growing, or if you're frustrated with God, or if you're not sure what God is doing, these practices help answer those questions. And none of them in that regard are as important as prayer. Now, so far, we've looked at the rhythm of guidance, which is overall, it is developing the rhythm of letting God lead you. And this is one of the breakdowns for a lot of people that attend church, but feel like God is nowhere to be found. There is a guidance in which God wants to call us and draw us and towards, and we have to decide whether that's what we want. And we talked about that in the sense of hearing God's voice and then obeying God's word. The next week we talked about the importance of silence and solitude, and we really could have wrapped prayer in with silence and solitude, but they're not exactly the same rhythm. We often practice those rhythms together, but most people do not live quiet lives. Most people don't practice silence or solitude in any way of their life. And if you have kids, you're even less likely to do that because there's something going on all the time. But there's something restorative about silence and solitude, getting away, letting all the distractions go away, that we can really focus on God. 
Then we talked about responding to suffering and adversity and the reality that suffering and adversity is just a part of life. Jesus never told us we would be able to avoid it. In fact, he said, expect it. But how we respond to it matters. Last week, Don talked with us about contemplation, meditation, and study. And really, that is more about transformation than it is about learning. And one of the problems that I run into, and I struggle with it at times myself, is the belief that because I'm learning something means God is changing me. But the reality is, is we can learn a lot of stuff and never be changed as a result of it. So transformation is the goal. And Richard Foster, because anytime you start using the words like contemplation and meditation, people's like, I don't know, that sounds like really weird. And one of the things, and some of the people that you've heard me talk about throughout this series are Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, because they did a lot of work in these areas. Richard Foster says there's a there's often the expectation that when you talk about contemplation and meditation that you're talking about some kind of Eastern religion because they talk so heavily about those things. But the, the very difference between Christian meditation and contemplation and Eastern meditation and contemplation is one wants you to empty everything out to where it's just you. Those are the Eastern practices. Like it's you become the center point of contemplation and meditation. But in Christian meditation, it's all about being filled with God, filled with something else. So they're vastly different practices, and we often avoid them because when we hear them, they're usually talked about in some other way. Any of those that you're interested in, you can go watch or you can can listen to online or on iTunes. Uh, Today I want to talk to you about prayer, and prayer... We have so many misunderstandings about prayer. And in all likelihood, if we poll everyone in the room or everyone who's watching online, there's going to be a mix of people of how they respond to prayer. There are going to be those that are like, I love it. It is life-giving for me. It is necessary for me. I, I mean, prayer is just so important to me. And then there are also maybe even more likely to hear, I don't pray that much. I probably should. Um, for a number of different reasons. It could be because I just, I feel like God's not listening, or I've prayed for things and they haven't happened, or I don't know how to pray. Kevin Halloran wrote a book called Why People Struggle to Pray, and, and he said there's really nine primary reasons why people don't pray, and I just thought I'd listen for you. You can go read his book if you want to. This is not what our topic is, but I, I resonated with me. At every At some stage of my life, I have felt every one of these reasons why people struggle to pray. The first one was, um, I forget why prayer matters. Like, I I just feel like I'm talking to air, and I don't even know why I do it, and I know you're supposed to do it, and I should do it. The second one, he said, was, I don't know what to pray. And if you've ever had somebody tell you you're praying wrong, you may fit into that category. That's not where we're headed today. Sometimes it's I feel too guilty to pray. I've just messed up so many times. If I go to God, I can't go. I just can't. I can't even fathom being in his presence. I'm not sure God hears me. I have mixed motives. I can't focus. I'm unorganized. I'm too stressed. And and honestly, number nine, maybe ought to be number one. I'm just too busy to pray. So I want to talk about prayer a little differently. And we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer together. but, But we need to take a deeper look than we often do. Because the Lord's Prayer, that's one of those things, when I grew up, did anybody grow up singing the doxology in church? Anybody do that? Yeah, a few of you did. We sang it every single week. It was usually right around the offering. 
And and I would just, you know, you could just sing it. I, I could right now, I, I haven't sung it in, gosh, probably 20 years. But I could honestly put it out right now, which I'm not going to. But I could put it out right now with the exact same inflection, with the exact same passion or lack thereof that I did 20 years ago. Uh, it, the, the Lord's Prayer often falls into the, kind of that category of we've done it so many times. Like, I just, it's boring. It doesn't mean anything to me. And at times we just... Kind of let it go but that the lord's prayer is it is rich in understanding how we are called to pray and, and not only how to pray but what prayer is so i hope you'll hear this with an open mind we're going to spend some time at the end actually doing some praying together uh because all of these things are practices rhythms are practices they're a rhythm because i may like i may not pray today but that doesn't mean i'm never going to pray again I'm going to develop a rhythm of prayer. I may not study today, but it doesn't mean I'm never going to study again. It's just a rhythm I know is a part of my life. It is something I, I do. And that's what I hope things become for you. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus literally taught us how to pray. Now, if you're here today, and, and you know, I, I attended a funeral today for a family member of one of our members that died from COVID, and... It is a struggle at times because there's no doubt many prayers went up that that wouldn't happen. There are people struggling with COVID right now, and many prayers have gone up for them. And at times we wonder, why did God not answer those prayers? I, I in no way intend to be able to give you a definitive answer that you can walk out of here today being like, oh, I get it now. I think Christians come up with those answers. And we give these pat responses, but they don't satisfy. I don't think the point of what Jesus is teaching us is to satisfy our need to understand why every prayer we pray, even the really feel like crucial ones, don't get answered. But I hope by the end of this you'll understand how prayer still does actually change everything, even if exactly what we ask for doesn't happen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we're going to be there. We're going to be looking at a few other scriptures um, but our main text is going to be Matthew 6. You can follow along on version if you want, um, or you can follow along on the screen, or you can follow along if, with your Bibles if you have those with you today. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, this is an instruction on how to pray. This is Jesus addressing how other people do pray, and specifically how religious people tend to pray in his day, and he's calling it out because in order for him to teach them what it is, he has to tell them first what it isn't. And for us to understand what Jesus is talking about here, we have to understand a little more of the Jewish culture and uh, kind of what their prayer practices were that led up. Because Jesus wasn't just pointing out three people he really didn't like and say, just don't be like those three people. This was a practice that had developed primarily because of the repetition that prayer had begun to become in the nation of Israel. It was, it was repeated so many times, some unhealthy patterns had happened that actually removed all of the power and the purpose of prayer. And he talks about the hypocrites. Now, in Jewish life, there was a prayer that you were to pray, and you were to pray this prayer three times a day, every single day. It's called the Shema. The Shema literally means, or Shema literally means here in English. 
And you, the scripture says, you would, when you rise up in the morning and when you go to bed in the evening, and then during the midday, you should pray this prayer. So what would end up happening is, is every Jew, every observant Jew would practice the Shema and they would repeat, it was, it's a prayer of three different passages of scripture and they would do it three times a day. They would repeat this exact same prayer three times a day when they got up, when they went to bed and sometime midday and most everybody began to get on the same schedule and they would pray the same time. Now, whenever you were getting up in the morning, you're likely to be alone. Whenever you would go to bed at night, you were likely alone. But the midday prayer, now, the midday prayer, you could plan the midday prayer. And what was happening is those religious zealots, they would find themselves in a really busy place for the midday prayer. Like they would go kind of the center of the market or they would go and, you know, want to be, you know, right kind of at the top of the temple. They want to be where there was a lot of activity. And then as we read in other places of Scripture, these same people were so about show even their dress was about, look at how spiritual I am. And so they would likely pray loud, and they would make sure that they were above other people, and lots of others could see them pray. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about, those who would have been praying the Shema at midday. Now, just so you know what they were praying, because this does enter into their conversation about the Lord's Prayer, these are the three passages that... They would pray. They come from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and Numbers 15. And if you want, you can read along with me or you can listen to me read. They would literally recite this three times a day. It begins in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that you will, so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that, are, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. The Lord said to Moses in Numbers 15, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart, your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. Three times a day. You do that three times a day. And so they would... Religious leaders would come to the middle of wherever they were in order to be seen by others. And Jesus says this is a being a hypocrite. 
Because the point of much of this prayer, if we go through, and we're not going to today, but if you go through and you read through this, what you're going to find is God is saying a few things to you. He's saying, number one, make sure that I am preeminent in your life. Be sure that you're following me. Be sure that you recognize the blessings that I give you. And then he's saying, and make sure you're obeying the commands of God and that you are doing the fundamental things that Jesus would say later are the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love others. Three times a day this happens. So as we go through and we read, Jesus then says, don't be like that. He's not saying you shouldn't read the Shema. Jesus, as an observant Jew, would have read the Shema or prayed the Shema three times a day, just like everybody else would, just as Jesus would have had the tassels that were instructed even in the Shema for you to wear. Jesus was an observant Jew. He would have done these things as well. He was not saying the practice of regular prayer was a problem. What he was saying was when the practice of regular prayer becomes something else, then it is something else. And it's not something that we should aspire to. He goes on after saying this in Matthew chapter 6 again, verse 6. He says, but when you pray, and this is where we really let our antennas go up, our ears open up, and we listen to, okay, what is Jesus going to say? But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, it's not about what you do in front of others. Prayer is a very personal thing between you and God. Now, other people can be around, and when we pray in just a few moments, there's going to be other people in the room that are praying, and and there are some rich times that I have with others that I pray with regularly. But what he's saying here is this is a prayer is a very personal thing between you and God. Don't make it about anything else. Keep it what it really is about. It says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Which brings up a couple of really interesting and important things here. Number one, God already knows what you're going to pray for. Which often leads us to the place of, well, then why do I need to pray? God already knows. We're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. But what he also says is he's talking to the Gentiles in the way that they pray. And the reason that he says this is because the Gentiles were praying as well. They weren't praying to the God of Abraham. They were praying to their gods or one of the gods that they are hoping is going to hear their prayer. The the incredible difference of what he's saying here is the Gentiles pray these long prayers with lots of these phrases because they're hoping that their God will hear them. And they feel like they have to get their God's attention, so they just talk and talk and talk, and they heap praises and praises and praises, and and maybe if I I stroke their ego enough, they'll listen to me, and then whatever I'm actually coming to pray about, uh, my God or that God will actually grant that. Jesus is saying, don't do that. This is not about you proving why God should answer your prayer or making God be interested in what's going on in your life. Because God already knows what you need even before you do. Even before you pray. So in other words, we're not trying to bend God's ear. We're not trying to force him to pay attention to us. He already knows, Jesus said. Which is a really interesting idea for those of us who are afraid that God has forsaken us or ignored us or doesn't hear our prayers. 
because God already knows what your needs are. Scripture even literally tells us in the moment you can't pray, the Spirit prays for you. That is how engaged God is in prayer. So prayer is is a very personal thing between a person and God. But what we also find is that Jesus is really a proponent of very simple prayer. I'm a little out of order on my slides there, Jeremy. Go down to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And this is where Jesus says, pray then like this. Now, I want you to understand before we go through this, this has been prayed by Christians for literally 2,000 years. In fact, there are people today praying this. There may be people right now praying this. And this was a practice that was picked up by the disciples and passed on to the church. And just as the Shema was prayed three times a day, they began to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And then they began to increase the amount of time that they would pray this. But as we go through this, why don't we just, you know, masks or not, let's pray this together. Let's say it out loud, okay? Pray then like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, some of you are tempted to keep going, right? You're like, that's not the end. Because if you read later, in fact, if you go into Matthew, and you read, I'm sorry, not Matthew, but if you go into Luke and read Luke, he actually adds something to the end of the prayer. For that is the kingdom and the power of and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not actually what Jesus said. That's in, in none of the places where we have the original manuscripts of this conversation does Jesus actually add that. But it is in a lot of translations. And the reason it's in the translations is because this has become such a regular practice for people that they felt like they needed to add something to it. They needed to not just follow the prayer that Jesus gave. They needed to do some kind of praise to God in the midst of it. And that became a cultural addition to the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you want to pray that, I think it's great. Because what I'm not going to lead you to is to say that whenever you pray, you just pray the Lord's Prayer as we just read it. In fact, prayer evolves the more you do it. But there are some things in this prayer that we that we can really change the way we view it and change the way we pray and see that our prayer becomes way more powerful than we ever thought that it was. One is, that's a lot shorter than the Shema, isn't it? Like you could probably see yourself praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, but after reading through the Shema, you're probably like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be, that's too long. Like I would, I would do the Cliff Notes version. Do you know, y'all know what Cliff Notes are? Is that even a thing? Is that still a thing? It is still a thing. I figured somebody else had it. It was called something else now. I might do the Cliff's Notes version of the Shema, but I'm not sure I'm going to do the whole thing because honestly, I got I got the places to be. I got things I've got to do. Richard Foster said this about simple prayer. He said, "Simple prayer involves ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate Father. There is no pretense in simple prayer. We do not pretend." 
to be more holy, more pure, or more saintly than we actually are. We do not try to conceal our conflicting and contradictory motives from God or ourselves. And in this posture, we pour out our heart to the God who is greater than our heart and who knows all things. Jesus is a proponent of simple prayer. And in reality, what begins to happen when we begin to pray in the way that Jesus told us to pray is it not only allows us to speak to God, but it actually changes us ourselves. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, there are two parts that you're going to find. And in these two parts, we learn what Jesus is really trying to say to you and what will, will really help your own prayer life. The first part we see in those first few verses is recognizing God and putting him first. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is our attempt to put our attention on God and God's will and what God wants and God's kingdom. Less so putting the emphasis on ourselves. But my guess is that most of our prayers, I know a lot of my prayers, end up quickly becoming about me. I won't ask you if that happens for you. I'm going to assume it does. There's some need. There's some fear. There's some worry about something. And I quickly want to go to God because I want God to be at work in this. You probably pray the same way. I'm telling you this because I'm hoping you can do something about this because I'm not sure what I can do about this. But Jesus said, whenever you begin to pray, first change your mind to be focused on the things of God. And the reality is is that none of us can fully monitor our own motives when we come before God. Whether we see Him as God, the pearl of great price, the one that we should sell everything we have just for the chance to have this, this treasure. Or whether we come to Him because we think that God is going to give us all our deepest wants and desires. What I find is recognizing God and putting Him first is when our motives become clear. It's when we become clear in our own minds what we're really about and what we're really asking. It's a place for us to change our perspective and our mind and our view of even the things we're about to pray for to remember, God, You first. You first. First, not about me or my will, but your will. Not about me and my kingdom, but your kingdom. It's not about me, God. This is about you. Jesus says, start your prayer in this way. But there's a second part of the prayer when he talks about our daily bread and forgiving our debts and forgiving our debtors, not being led into temptation and delivering us from evil. The second part of the Lord's Prayer, is this making our requests, but it's also opening our eyes. I want you to to notice a few things that you may not have noticed before about the Lord's Prayer. Number one, Jesus has just said, go in private and pray. Go into a door, close it, anybody else around, and pray. But then when he tells them how you should pray, it's interesting how he phrases this. He says, Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we 
have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which is interesting because Jesus has just said, go do this by yourself. And most of us, when we pray, we pray from the perspective of I and me, not from we and us. But Jesus is very specific here. We pray for we, us, and our, not me, myself, and I. And why is that? He's not saying you should not bring your concerns to God because the very first one he uses in this part of the Lord's Prayer is very much your concern, your ability to eat your next meal. So I I doubt there's anyone in this room who is not sure what they're doing for lunch today. You probably know it may already be cooking. You may be, you know, looking at the timer on your watch to think, hey, I hope he wraps up quick because we got to get back to lunch. Or you might go out to eat or I don't know, but probably everyone in this room not only knows what they're going to do for lunch, you probably also know what you're going to do for dinner and breakfast tomorrow and lunch tomorrow and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner. You pro- there's probably not, and if there is, come talk to me. Like if you don't know where lunch is coming from, I want to talk to you, and I want to help you have your next meal. But interestingly, what Jesus says is, pray for us. Give us this day our daily bread. So why did Jesus tell us to pray in private and then to pray in us and we? What ends up happening when we start with this these two parts of the Lord's Prayer, and we begin with assenting to see things from God's eyes, and we begin to pray recognizing God is most important and God's will be done, and this is about God's kingdom and not me and it's not mine. It changes, begins to change our perspective on what we're about to ask God for. But it also, when you begin to pray in this way, especially when you begin to understand prayer is not just about you, but it's about your community, about your family, it's about the people that you're around, and, and you're praying this, and you're, you're literally reciting this, because Christians recited this in the, in the first century church. And you don't have a problem with your next meal. But you're focused on God's kingdom and God's will and what does God want done. And God, give us, give us, all of us, give all of us our daily bread. But I've got my daily bread. I've got my bread for today and for tomorrow, the next day, and really for the next month. I know I've got my bread I know of somebody who doesn't have their bread? I mean, I've got mine, but Bob over here, I know Bob doesn't have his. Now, I could respond in that way and say, God, please give Bob his bread. And honestly, that's the Christian way, isn't it? That's the American Christian way. God, please bring somebody, anybody, like find anybody that can give Bob some bread. I'm over here eating mine. And in this, what Jesus is doing is really pretty spectacular and it changes the whole way we see prayer in this moment because what Jesus is doing is saying, pray that we would have our daily bread and as you are seeking God's will and you are making what God wants preeminent, you are going to look around and go, I think I need to give Bob some bread. Like I don't even have to ask God to give Bob some bread because I have extra. I can give Bob some bread. Bob's got bread now. We both have bread. God, give us all our daily bread. You have, and you used me to help do that. 
So this is how prayer begins to change us. Because we so many times believe that prayer is passive. Prayer is the thing in which we ask God to do the supernatural thing that we can't do. But what Jesus is saying and what he's modeling for them is, listen, pray in this way that prayer not only changes you, but moves you to action. And this is why most of us, at some point in our lives, give up on prayer. Because we've prayed for God to give Bob his daily bread, and Bob still doesn't have his bread, and God was like, so so if you understood what I was saying, you would have given him bread, and the prayer would have been answered. This continues for all the others that he mentions, which are very short, and is not meant to be exhaustive. It's just to give an example. And forgive us, us, our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Have you ever been so mad at somebody? Because they've done you wrong. And it feels good to be mad. Because they really did you wrong. Like, you're daydreaming ways to let them know how wrong they did you. Have you ever done that and then have a moment where you realize you did something worse to somebody else? Has anybody else ever... Like, it's happened to me, so I can just testify for myself. But, yeah, thank you for a few others are saying that. What happens to you in that when you realize that? Like, I have a really hard time staying mad at the person who wronged me when I realize how bad I was to somebody else. I think that's what Jesus knew about us. And I think that's exactly why he said this. Forgive us our debts. God, I want to be forgiven. Why don't I want them to be forgiven too? And then, just in case that wasn't enough for the disciples, he enunciated the point and he said, and let me forgive our trespasses. They have trespassed against us just as you forgive me. Let me enunciate the point that I'm talking about the fact that prayer brings you to a place where you begin to see how God wants us to work and interact and live together as a community. And it's not just this place where we say, God, please rescue me. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus prayed the rescue me prayer. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus prayed all the time. Jesus was always getting away. And he was teaching the disciples to get away. And they would fall asleep regularly and be like, You all not stay awake. But you still not get what I'm talking about here. But even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if you can take this cup from me, but if not, your will, not mine. Jesus prayed the rescue me prayers too. So I'm in no way trying to over-spiritualize this, that you never pray, help me, rescue me, save me. We absolutely pray those things. But Jesus was not rescued in the way that he prayed. He still went through it, but he still went to God with this concern. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. If we really believe the Bible, if we really believe what Jesus said, if we really believe that the most important thing we can possibly do with our lives is to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and our strength, if we really believe that, and we really believe that the second is like it, that we will love our neighbor as ourself, and if we don't do what the disciples did, we do, But if we don't and say, well, God, well, then who's my neighbor? Like, who am I supposed to love? Am I supposed to love everybody? Come on, you know Bob. I mean, I gave him bread and he never said thank you. Am I supposed to love him? If 
really believe that is the point of following Jesus, it changes the way we deal with every person we come in contact with. And so when we pray and we say, Oh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're worthy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Here. Do your will here. Make whatever you're doing in heaven, make it happen here. Right now. God, forgive me for my sins. Bob sinned against me. And I'm holding it against him. I need to go forgive Bob. I hope there's not a Bob in here. Like, I hope none of our guests are named Bob. But that's what prayer does. Do you see the difference between our drive-by lists of requests for God and what Jesus is talking about, about prayer? And can you see what would happen if you made this a regular part of your life versus not? You don't have these conversations with God. You don't have these struggles within your heart and within your mind. You don't say, I've got enough bread, but Bob doesn't. We don't say, God, forgive me for my sin. I'm holding something against Bob. I need to forgive him. Jesus then additionally enunciates the point, actually, if you keep reading after the Lord's Prayer, and he says, because, I mean, how can you expect God to forgive you if you won't forgive other people? I mean, Jesus, at times, he's like, I know... This is so clear, but they're not going to get it. Let me say it again. (laughs) Jesus does that. See, I am a believer that without prayer, we don't grow. We don't grow as Christians. Families don't grow. Our church doesn't grow. Our community doesn't get better. The problems we're facing don't fade away. We have to grow. Prayer is so crucial as a rhythm in your own life, that if you are not regularly practicing it, I already know you are not growing. You may be learning, but you are not growing. You are not growing in your love for God or love for others. Prayer is meant to be the thing that expands our ability to do both. As we read through the New Testament, we find that just as those practicing Judaism, read the Shema three times a day. What history tells us is that the early church began to read, not read, but pray the Lord's Prayer together three times a day. They replaced the Shema, the practice they had done and their their parents had done and their grandparents and great-grandparents and all those down the line had done. They replaced that with the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we read in Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, excuse me, and the prayers, plural. They began praying this three times a day. In 1 Thessalonians, or no, we'll go backwards. In James 5, this is what James says. James the Apostle says, he says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, our our prayer has to involve others and not just be about us. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says this. This is where praying became so crucial to them, so crucial just to living life, to understanding 
Christ, to becoming more like Christ. He says, rejoice always. Not three times a day. Not on Sundays. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Well, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer. Just pray the Lord's Prayer all the time. And I, I don't actually think that's what he means. But that is the development of prayer in the life of a person that sees how powerful it is. Three times isn't enough anymore. It's not enough. Like this becomes the lifeblood in which I see other people. The lifeblood in the way I see myself and the lifeblood in the way I see God. It changes me. And gosh, look at how our community has changed because in my time of prayer, God showed me how I was to be active and go answer the prayer of others on his behalf. Jesus even said that's what happened because he said, listen, when you see somebody who's poor and you feed them or you see somebody who needs clothes and you give them clothes, you're, it's actually like you're doing it literally to me, Jesus says. See, this is what's missing in many of our individualistic world culture of Christianity today. It was never meant to be that. It was meant to be us looking. If you're constantly in prayer at least three times a day or like Paul praying without ceasing if you're constantly coming to mind the needs of other people do you think it would change the way you interact with people on a daily basis even when you're not praying probably probably do we look at other people and do we stereotype them and categorize them and put them in these demeaning places probably not because I am struggling I'm looking at your needs through the lens of my own needs. I'm looking at your sin through the lens of my own sin. And I'm looking at your need to be lifted up and encouraged just as I need to be lifted up and encouraged. It changes the way we see people. It changes the way we act around people. Just to finish that 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, he says, Also give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to wrap up. Four things, the power of prayer. These really are not to be accentuated more than everything we just talked about. I really could stop right now. I almost didn't put these four things together because I felt like this was going to make things more complicated. But just if I were to bullet point a few things for you, for those who like to take notes this way. Number one, this is the power of prayer. Number one, prayer causes us to be vulnerable and honest before God, which brings us closer to God. When I go to pray... I can pretend to be whatever I want, but God sees through it all. I have, there is zero, there is no other relationship in my life that I am as transparent with as I am with God. If you feel that you can not be transparent with God, oh, God help you. Because he knows every bit. He knows every horror story. He knows, he doesn't just know your actions. He knows every motive. Like he knows it. He still loves you. And he knows every bad thought you had. He still died for you. I mean, Jesus knows that your tendency is not good in whatever area of life you struggle with. And God's like, you're my child. God sees it, and he accepts you in spite of that. That's why Jesus died on the cross. See, if we were able to be transparent and to not have those problems, Jesus would not have had to have died on the cross. The reality is, is that in the power of prayer is that there is no other relationship you can be so vulnerable and transparent than the one with God. And so if we blow off prayer because, you know, I prayed that I'd get another job and I never got another job, so I guess prayer doesn't work. You're missing 
on all of the good stuff that comes in knowing Jesus and being empowered by Him. This prayer is one of the doors that opens that. Second thing about the power of prayer is that prayer invokes God's power and provokes us to change and act. God does work, but many times God works through us. God, I pray there was something I could do for the medical personnel that are being burned out dealing with COVID right now. I just, God, sustain them, encourage them, help them. You know, I think I saw that the hospitals are asking for volunteers to help with this. Maybe I should go volunteer. See, that's how prayer changes our perspective from, God, you do this thing, to, I think God is telling me to go do this thing. See how that changes? And then what happens, like, if in mass, Christians go volunteer? Would anybody who's in the medical profession who doesn't know Jesus look at Christians and go, wow, wow, probably. I would think it would change somebody's perception. And it could all begin with the prayer, God, can you sustain them and help them? Prayer invokes God's power, but it also provokes us to change the way we see, the way we act, and to act. The third thing, prayer opens our eyes to the needs of others and how you can love them. Prayer does that. And it begins through the lens of your own need. And as you mature in your praying, your view just gets wider and wider and wider. And the fourth thing is the power of prayer. As prayer changes us, we are compelled to become more like Jesus. You see how important prayer is? How misunderstood it often is? I bet some of you that are listening right now, there's something in your mind going, yeah, yep, I knew it, I knew it. I've been feeling like God's been telling me I'm supposed to go do something. I've been asking him to do it, but I feel like he's been telling me to go do it. I would encourage you to go do it. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's to go forgive somebody. Maybe it's to go give somebody some bread. Maybe it's to go volunteer at a hospital. I don't know what it is. Prayer will change you and compel you to be more like Christ. Richard Foster again says this. The primary purpose of prayer is to bring us into such a life of communion with the Father that by the power of the Spirit, we are increasingly conformed to the image of His Son. This is what everything we do is supposed to push us towards. Everything we do as a church should push people to become more like Christ. It should not be to have happy experiences. I struggle with this regularly, especially through COVID. COVID, I... I struggle with stress, anxiety, discouragement, and depression throughout all of COVID. Not because I'm afraid of COVID, because I honestly, I'm fine with whatever happens to me. I struggle with what it does to our community. And we want to have all these programs and have all these people here, and we want to just be smiling and laughing and having fun all the time. And while I still want that, and... When this Delta variant gets out of here, we're going to be moving to more things like that. Again, that is not the purpose of our existence. The purpose of our existence is to move people to become like Christ, which is why so many people can attend church and feel like they're not growing at all. 
Richard Foster says, I just love what he says about this. Primary purpose is to become more like Christ. Not to get God to bend to our will. All right. This took me way longer to tell you this stuff than I thought it was going to. But I want to take just a few minutes to pray with you, and then we're going to close in.